Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I once again have the great pleasure of bringing back onto our show my dear friend Charlie Engel. And Charlie, for those of you that don't know him, is absolutely one of the most entertaining, interesting ultra marathon runners on the planet. He is credited with running the Sahara. And this is where Charlie and I first met, not out in the desert, but via podcast. (laughs) We discussed the effort that he took on and what an amazing, amazing feat that was. And then there's just a a ton of things of similar note that he had created since then. And first of all, Charlie, just go ahead and say hello to the folks. Thank you, Rich. Man, it's so good to be back. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing how how time flies and there's always another adventure and another uh, painful idea to pursue out there. But uh, getting a chance to actually talk about them once in a while is a lot of fun. And I appreciate you having me back on. It's interesting you brought that up and what you brought up was painful journeys. And I remember, and I think it was our first interview we talked, you made this comment that really stuck with me about how pain is actually an asset for you. Can you kind of expound on that before we get too crazy? Yeah, you know, and I, and I think I think most ultra runners and and I think in this world that that you and I occupy, you know, with Spartan and with so many other uh really ultra endurance events hitting the scene, you know, people in general are are coming to this place where they recognize the value of pain and the and the value of actually pushing yourself beyond your limits and that's a that's a cliche that i i tend to stay away from but all you have to do is look back 20 years you know 20 years ago somebody if you if you said to somebody hey i'm running the marathon this weekend you know you it was pretty likely you would get oh my god you're running a marathon that's fantastic you know i i don't drive that far in my car that old joke and and now it's like you tell somebody you're running the marathon and they're like, Oh yeah, you know, my grandmother just did her third marathon this past, past weekend. And you know, and that's, that's cool. It's it's fantastic that that's been the genesis of the sport. But I, I think that we look, I, I freely admit, you know, ego plays a partial role. My, my core person that I am plays a huge role in me seeking you know, pain and suffering, but I, I, I like to say something to myself even. So I'll say, Hey, what are you doing next? And I say, well, this is, this is what I got going on. I'm going to go run across, you know, this desert or this mountain or whatever. And they're like, wow, that's, you know, that's cool. And it sounds, it sounds tough. And, you know, and I admit, you know, that I, that I like the feeling that it gets that I feel like I'm doing things that maybe not everybody is doing or, or wants to do. But when it boils down to, I think, the the word pain, you know, I have yet to ever find anything truly revealing uh, to to me as, as to the kind of person that I am that didn't come through pain. And, you know, I don't want to always be out there seeking it and, and causing it. My my wife, uh, my wife asked me quite often if I if I understand pain very well, you know, do I have a to have a desire to actually figure out how to be happy. So that's the that's the parallel quest in my life these days is to is to continue to seek pain, but also to uh, occasionally check in on on what my progress towards happiness is. Got it. Well, 
so that very nicely brings us to this whole, uh, and I can't remember the term that Nick always uses, but there's a term for the uh, you know doing an event that no one's done before and setting a record in it. What, what is that? FTK or what, what? oh yeah, right. So fastest known time, which okay. has kind of become a uh, FKT, which has sort FKT. of become a, a, a normal thing these days. And you know FKTs are interesting because. They really are self-made adventures, and that's what both Nick, uh, Nick Holland, of course, who you're talking about, you know, Nick is uh, at 25 years old. He shouldn't have this much wisdom, but but he does. Um, you know, it's this it's this uh, new trend, and where, and I think the likes of uh, Strava and a lot of these uh, websites out there, these apps that track particular routes are maybe what what brought about the recognition of it i mean people have always sought an adventure and said hey i'm going to see how fast i can go from point a to point b and then there became this sort of craze of everything had to be documented and it's is it a record or isn't it and with fkts it's really like who cares you know the point is i might say or nick might say i'm going to try to go from this point to this point and let's see how fast we can do it there's other people out there who've done it, and we're going to try to go faster than they did. And it's really that simple. And, it, and documentation is not the point, and, and trying to prove something isn't the point, because there's no, there's no record book being kept on it. It's purely uh, uh, an adventure for adventure's sake. Well, I know that back in, I think it was October, November, Nick and I were having dinner, and he was explaining to me that he had brought you in to have participation in this effort where he was going to go, you guys were going to go to the top of Mount Whitney over trail versus what is traditionally over road, that whole adventure. And apparently that fell apart given to, well, you can explain to us in greater detail why, but then given that you guys were in the mode, you took on this new idea, this new challenge, which was to go from the Pacific Ocean for, from sea to the Salton Sea. And we're going to talk about that, but let's start by talking about what dashed the plans for getting to the top of Whitney. Yeah, you know, Nick, Nick, it was Nick's idea, and he approached me, gosh, more than a year ago and said, hey, I want to go from... I want to go from the floor of Death Valley, uh, you know, from the Badwater sign, literally at the floor of Death Valley to the top of Mount Whitney. And I said, wow, that sounds really familiar. <laughs> A lot of people have done that. He says, no, you don't understand. We're going to go backcountry. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're not going to touch a road if we can help it. And we're going to try to blaze our own, our own path. And, you know, it's interesting because we would not have been technically the first people to do it, but no one covers exactly the same route on a backcountry adventure like that. So it's just something that, that Nick had decided he wanted to do. And I, of course, love Death Valley uh, and have, have run the traditional Badwater race, you know, many times. And I, I just love it out there. And And so I said yes immediately. And we you know, we pushed our date a couple of times. We were originally going to go like in September and then it got moved to October. And, and before you know it, we were looking at December and uh, El Nino had a say in it. And, and literally three days before uh, I was due to fly out and we we're going to do this thing, uh, El Nino really dumped two feet of snow on Mount Whitney and you know, mine, way minus 50 degrees, wind chill and avalanche dangers were off the charts. And, you know, I rarely let, and I know Nick doesn't either, I rarely let uh, danger necessarily stop me. But, you know, I also have, have reached this age by not being stupid. And we decided, you know, look, we, we just can't do this when this isn't the time we can't do it. But Plane tickets had been purchased, and I was going to go out, and we, we had about five minutes, I think, of just canceling the whole thing, and, and I said, what else can we do? And quite literally on the phone, we, we both took out our maps and started looking at what other adventures we could do locally, and and Nick said, look, I, I've, I've always wanted to go from the Pacific to uh, to the Salton Sea, and, and there's a traditional route called the Sea to Sea 
route, which is about 120 miles. And uh, Nick, of course, being being Nick, did not want to do the traditional route. <laughs> he wanted to go over, you know, three mountain passes that weren't part of that route. And and that's what we decided to do. We we literally on one phone call of an hour, we, we put together a, a plan and a route and and decided to go ahead and, and go forward with this adventure, even though we, we knew that uh, we weren't really all that prepared. And the the destination that you took on would have been, say, what, 140 miles? It would have added about 20 to 25 miles to the traditional route to go the way we were going. And so, yes, it would have been about 140 miles. And, you know, with wandering around, uh, who knows, a little bit more even. But, um, yeah, 140 is what we were planning on when we started. And let's get a sense of the, the, the terrain and elevation gains and things like that. Yeah, so, you know, really the, the, the terrain, the elevation gain was not going to be a, a significant issue. At least I should say elevation itself wasn't going to be a significant issue as it would have been. You know, Mount Whitney is 14,500, so clearly uh, as a flatlander where I live, you know, that would, have, that would have hurt had we done that adventure, that part of it, um, not to mention the up and down along the way. With C to C, uh, I don't even know if Nick calculated the exact amount of elevation change, if we ever even even uh, calculated that, but it certainly would have been, you know, it would have been tens of thousands of feet in elevation change from start to finish. And, uh, you know, we got out there, and, and here's the irony. I mean, I'll just go ahead and jump into what happened, you know, we started this adventure on the 10th, you know, a couple of days after I arrived in San Diego and, and the El Nino that had hit uh, Mount Whitney and it hit all of California at that point, uh, which is sort of still hitting it out there, certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't like missing San Diego. So we started to get, you know, pounded by, by rain and wind and some issues pretty early on in our run and you know we took off from the pacific and we you know we started heading through uh certain sections of the route and found that we were getting you know we were getting cliffed out we were getting you know rained out and nick was having to make a lot of on-the-fly decisions uh about directions to to take and you know, quite frankly, we got out there and and uh, the conditions dominated the directions we were going. And I'll give you one great example of having to having to really make a hard decision. You know, we were moving along and we come to one of the many reservoirs in the area and uh, we really can't go back. Nick realizes that the water level of this reservoir was up over a hundred feet over the last time he had been there. (laughs) So, (laughs) so all of the trails which run around the reservoir are, you know, closer to water level and all of those are underwater now. And, you know, we literally have no choice but to go in the water and try to get across a portion of it, um, you know, freezing our tails off and just really, really was a huge struggle and we you know we never would have chosen to do that in the middle of a run but there was no there was nowhere else to go we couldn't go back and we couldn't go forward without without getting across a finger of this water and so you know so that's what we did and you know two hours later i was still my teeth were still chattering and you know we managed to get to get past that part but then we reach another reservoir a few hours later and, and literally end up crossing the reservoir in a in a spot that there should have been water. So we had an extreme on one on one reservoir where there was too much and an extreme on another where there wasn't any water in one section of it. And it was a reservoir very familiar to Nick. Everything was unfamiliar to me, and I'm certainly not uh, I'm not holding Nick responsible for it, but he you know, he, he, we were in Nick's backyard and, and he hated the fact that, you know, we kept having to, you know, make alternate route choices because there was just simply nowhere to go. That would have so, drove you know, me crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was painful. It was painful for us. It was, you know, it's physically painful, but I think, I think the emotional part of that 
adventure. And we ended up out there for about 28 hours, 27, 28 hours. And the emotional impact and everybody who's ever gone on, you know, an adventure, well-planned or not, and has managed to get themselves lost or, you know, we knew basically where we were. We just couldn't get where we wanted to go. And it's very frustrating. And it, and it takes a, a huge psychological toll. You know, I look back at my, I started my, my as I like to say, my real pursuit of, of uh, overnight and multi-day pain back with the adventure racing world and doing Eco Challenge and the Raid Gawaz and, and some of those races. And, you know, we had teams in those days that spent, you know, we'd spend 24 hours freaking, I mean, absolutely lost. <laughs> like not... Not like, oh, okay, we're looking for the trail. I mean, I mean, lost. Like, you know, we're hoping somebody might come find us sometime soon. And and it takes such an emotional toll. You know, it it, it truly takes the the air from the tires and makes it tough. That even when you do finally get found, it it has added so much time to the adventure that it makes it really difficult to continue. You know, luckily. And with team events, if you got good teammates, someone always steps up and says, look, we're, you know, we're here to get this done. So stop your complaining and let's keep moving. Right. And, uh, you know, we did that for a long time. Nick and I did with this particular C2C adventure. Luckily, we had uh, Nick's girlfriend, Jade, and a couple of other people that were minding us out there in the field, although we'd, we'd been uh, MIA for a number of hours. You know, by the time we finally reached some civilization again, you know, we had really, <laughs> we had really overshot our window of time. We had a couple of people that were willing to help us out through the weekend, but our adventure was about to go into, you know, a Monday or even Tuesday finish, and you know, we pulled the plug. And as I like to say, it it it's one of those things. You know, you don't you don't always get the outcome that you want, but it's imperative to keep going out there and giving it a try. And it was quite funny afterwards because I'll tell you, Rich, a couple of people, you know, immediately sort of reached out to us and said, Hey, you know, here's the route right here. You know, like they even sent us links saying, here's the route. And, you know, so we found ourselves explaining that, look, we, we understand that. We know that there is a route, but that's not the route that we were taking. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you know, you risk looking like, uh, you know, like like you don't know what you're doing when you try something that hasn't been done before. And that's the nature of it. And I, I know that Nick and I both, uh, when it came down to it, though, the core of it, we had a blast out there. And we really enjoyed, you know, taking on the adventure together and look forward to doing, you know, doing other things uh, together and you know, ultimately, I got 28 hours of, of fun and a great workout, and um, I think that pair of shoes still hasn't dried out yet. I but, um, you know, my those hokas are, uh, they, they can retain some water, so it was uh, it was a battle to keep dry. But anyway, we're, we're glad that we took the adventure on, and we certainly will be trying that one again. And we learned some things we didn't know, and, and uh, next time we'll be better prepared. So I got a couple of questions. Uh, first off, I know you had a support crew, but how did they support you? Yeah, it's a great question because, frankly, when you you know early on leaving San Diego, leaving Coronado area, and all that, it's you know look you can you can meet somebody who's driving to a destination every every five miles. But once we got out there in the middle of nowhere. You know, cell phones didn't work, of course, and, you know, Nick had come up with a, a great projected time for us to reach each spot along the route. And, you know, once we're late for an hour, two hours, five hours, eight hours, you know, it becomes pretty stressful for those people that are uh, waiting for us. And... You know, and so in those in that case, I mean, we basically ran out of everything. We ran out of water and food. We certainly were not, uh, you know, certainly not prepared to be out there for as long as we were because it's a, 
you know, you, I think when you do these adventures, you always try, I know, I know I do. I always try to walk that fine line between being prepared from a safety standpoint, but taking as little as possible. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take, I'm just not, I'm not going to take a down jacket. I'm not going to take a, a, you know, a sat phone. I'm not going to take a bunch of other things that weigh a lot because every, every ounce, every pound makes the going even slower. And, you know, it is a, it is a calculated risk. Uh, and I, and, you know, look, even if we had had to hunker down overnight in some, you know, underneath some rock out there, which I have done more than a few times in my adventure career, you know, that wouldn't have been the end of the world. You know, we, right. we were, we stayed safe generally speaking, and didn't take any big chances. And, you know, there were flash flood warnings all over the place, again, because of El Nino. And and we'd already been in two slot canyons, you know, making our way uh, along the route. And there were five more, four or five more slot canyons we were going to have to go through. And, you know, and again, the reality of that is I, I always would prefer to live to fight another day, certainly on an adventure that is... Uh, that was really just for fun anyway. So, you know, we learned some things and, and I'm actually proud and happy to say that, you know, one of them is you occasionally have to say, okay, this isn't going to happen this time. Right. You know, a couple of thoughts. I know, I know um, Nick's girlfriend and I just yep. can imagine her out there just scathing, you know, <laughs> at the fact that you you missed your, your date for the, the crew yeah, and hours going by, and starting to get nervous, and Nick getting ultra nervous because he knows she's getting nervous. Yeah, and that whole drama starts to unfold, and I I could just imagine how that was starting to wear uh, the whole system thin. Oh, uh, she and she's a you know she's fantastic. She's a great athlete and runner in her own right, and you know and look, the reality is for anybody doing an adventure, you know, you almost always have to have some some help. And those those people that are willing to help, uh, Nick's friend uh, Kishav, my friend now, uh, was also out there with us taking some photographs and other things. And we had a couple of Nick's buddies who came out and ran with us some. You know, these people are sacrificing their time and energy, you know, to, to try to help. And it, it's, it feels terrible when you let them down i mean that's actually the worst of it oh, yeah. I, I hated i hated letting them down way more than i hated not finishing the run <laughs> yeah that's what i mean i mean the whole dynamic yeah. of the whole dynamic of you know it's one thing that you know where you are time yeah. and space exactly. and you have a, a relative comfort level and respect to your ability to survive but the other people don't know what you're yeah. doing or what you're going through or whether or not you're safe and whether or not yeah. they missed you, and just the uh, just the the whole minutia can get really ugly, I would imagine. Yeah, always, you know. And again, we we show try to show as much gratitude as possible, but there's this, you know, there's this dual thing. You know, we finally meet up with the crew, and it's like, oh my god, I'm so glad you're safe. Where the hell have you been? Yeah. <laughs> you well, know? you know, he tried to get me to come out there and help you guys. And it, as it turned out, as it turned out, uh, I had something else that was conflicting. Yeah, sure you did. Uh, I, I pushed something into the space to make sure right, it was perfect. conflicting. Right, perfect. That was a smart move. He said, yeah, I need some support crew to go out to the desert, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just envisioning me sitting in my car waiting for you guys to do yep. something. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know, that's just not within my, my character. Apparently. It's tough. I think being, you know, being crew, you know, I've asked many wonderful people to give up their time and effort on my behalf and and i try to repay that whenever possible but it's you know it's difficult and 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 you know and in my case my you know my my wife had stayed behind she goes very often on these adventures but she stayed behind and and you know it's even more frustrating in some ways from three thousand miles away you know wondering you know wondering where your your uh loved one is and and why they haven't been in touch you know i mean she understands very well. It's it's an adventure, and I'm not out there to you know to chat on the phone. But uh, you know, but it's nice to be able to stay in touch, and and for people who are worried to to know that 
you know, the, to know that you're safe. And that is a, that is part of the burden to take on is to, is to make sure that people are comfortable with that. I'll tell you what, my wife would not stomach that for a moment. Yeah. If I was yeah. two, two minutes off of path, she'd send a search crew. And, yeah, you know, yeah. They, they, they would have the whole National Guard in the mountains finding me. Yeah, but yeah, well, I, I I do have to tell you, Richard, too. My my wife is in the room right now, and she just walked up and handed me a note and said, "It just all it says is eighteen hours," <laughs> and I think that means that's how long I was out of I was out of touch. And and look, this is a and I say this ser- I say this jokingly and seriously. You know, she. She loves me and she knows who she married and there is a um there's a selfishness to these to these endeavors. I mean there's a isn't there a selfishness to pretty much anything that is deeply meaningful and I don't care if it's your if it's your business or whatever passion there is there's a there's a point at which you know you do you have to be you have to be selfish and you have to ask those people that care about you and support you to allow you to be selfish and and for them to still love you anyway. And I think that's a it's a it's a tough line. It's a fine line and not everybody can not everybody can handle it because there's no way I can fully repay uh yeah, I can't repay that faith and that love, you know, fully, but you know, I'm an adventurer, and my wife is an adventurer too, and and so she gets it. But that doesn't make it any easier when it's when it's in the moment. Yeah, you know, the uh, other thing you talked about when you were talking about adventure racing and trying to keep things light, I'd imagine that's pretty much where that came from in your mind is that you had the experience of keeping things light. And we talked about this before, but I know you crewed with Kathy Sasson. Sure. Back in the day, and Kathy was a friend of mine, and Kathy had told me a story about how, I don't know specifically at the moment where she was with a crew during an adventure race, but mm-hmm. being up in the mountains and there was snow, and you know there was a requirement of the things that you have to bring with you. Right. And, for example, I believe that you have to have a... Um, what is that blanket? Uh, yeah, the space blanket. Space blanket. Yeah. And she had a space blanket. She cut it to the size of a napkin. Ah. And <laughs> she also, I believe you had to have a toothbrush. Yeah. And she cut the stem off of the toothbrush. So all there was is just the brush part of the toothbrush yeah. in order to cut weight. And you think about the extreme nature of thinking in terms of really, really getting it down to the wire so that it'd be acceptable for you to take on the adventure, but at the same token, having what you—I don't know how that space blanket was going to help. To be honest with you, well, it wasn't going to help anything, and that, and that is so funny. And let me tell you, Rich. I mean, I've been on adventure racing teams, and I know Kathy has too. Where it wasn't just—it wasn't that everybody had a toothbrush cut down to one little nub. It was one toothbrush for the entire team cut down to a little nub, and it was. It was a matter of reading the rules and quite literally taking advantage of every loophole possible, which, of course, is is not a wise thing to do from a safety standpoint. And, you know, races learned how to counteract that because they, they did learn that adventure racers and, and ultra runners are the same way. It's the, really the same people will look at the rules if it happens to be a race. And and they will find, you know, Chris Kosman is, is great out at Badwater because he, if you read his rules and regulations, man, he accounts for pretty much every way that a racer could try to, you know, bend the rules and take advantage of the rules. And, and he does it, though, not to be, you know, not to be mean or, or somehow limiting. He does it for safety. And... You know, and the fact is, we have to be, I, I freely admit, I have to be protected from myself every once in a while, because I will, you know, I'll look at those three bottles of water, and I'll think, ah, oh, you know, I'll probably be fine with two, and, you know, maybe even one, you know, and I'm just thinking about the weight and how fast I'm going to go, and experience has taught me to take a step back, you know, which is what we did, what Nick and I did, and evaluate things, and 
and really try to make sure that, you know, we can't guarantee our safety in every aspect, but that we've got the right things along with us that, that if things go incredibly wrong, you know, we have a way to save ourselves. I've, I use this as an example. Like I have never climbed Mount Everest and there's one reason for it. And I, I would like to someday, despite all of the terrible things that have happened there in recent years and sort of the over population of that mountain. But I, I've said for years that I don't want to climb until the day comes when I am a hundred percent confident that I can save myself on that mountain. You know, because if you re- if I if I go up there the way so many people do, basically counting on you know Sherpas or other people to to pull my butt out of the fire, I'm not saying that I wouldn't let somebody. I would I would I'll take any help I can get, but I would like to go there knowing that I have a really good chance if things go wrong of of saving myself and not relying on other people to do it. And that's kind of the mentality that I try to put towards every adventure you know there's going to be risk but i want to know that if everything goes wrong you know i've got a shot at 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 saving myself and i think that's that's part of this whole fkt movement this fastest known time and and you know people people should be going out and planning their adventures you know don't always just pay your 150 dollars and enter the race i love racing and I, I love race organizers and the hard work they put in to put on great events but sometimes it's better just to grab a map and your backpack and and just go figure it out you know make your own adventure and go figure it out because that's that's really the definition of of adventure you know, I, I don't want to get too far off point. There's a couple of things that I want to talk to you about before we get off the line here. But it, it, when you're talking to me about this type of thing, it brought to mind this movie that I just saw. And I, I'm gonna—I don't want to mess the movie up if you haven't seen it. But <laughs> have you seen The Walk? Yes, I have actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amazing. Oh God, man! I, I you know, I have uh, back in the day when I was younger, when I was young. I was an iron worker, and I have been up for eight, ten-hour shifts working on a hotel. Maybe, I don't think I've gotten any higher than 14 or 15 stories off the ground, but basically spending the entire day balanced on a, I don't know, probably a, a five-and-a-half to six-inch uh, girder, walking around, stooping down, doing what I had to do, moving up, carrying things, catching things from the crane, spend the entire day up there, and to the left or right, just look down, and if you screw up, you're done. Yeah. Right? And so this movie, and I'm going to try to keep from messing it up for everybody else, but in this movie, the guy manages to, I mean, everybody knows it's history. Yeah. He manages to walk this tightrope wire from one trade center to the next, mm-hmm. the two towers. And, I mean, I, my wife knows how just watching TV and looking down those shots <laughs> that they do, you know, where you're looking down the city, they always yeah. chill me. I mean, my hair stands on my head anymore. And Same I think it's, it comes back from when I was doing that type of work. But, uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Back then, we would smoke weed up there and be sure. and be fine, right, just yeah. all day long. That's probably but, why you did fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, now, but now, just seeing that kind of thing just drives me crazy. Oh. And, and we went into this movie with the knowledge, my wife had the knowledge, that this is going to just terrify me the whole time. Yeah. So the guy finally walks across, and then he goes, no, i got to go back, and yeah. goes back. And I'm not going to go any further than that, but just that's what it sounds like to me. It's like this this whole adventure thing is a you get this you get this bug, you get this challenge, and you feel like I've got to do this, and everybody looks at you like you're nuts, and then finally you pull it off, and then after you pull it off, you go, ah, oh, that's just not enough. I got I got to yeah. go do this other thing. Well, we have short memories. That's part of it too. We have short memories both for pain and success, and I guess that's a gift. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure it is, you know, because it's it's something that, you know, we 
we don't get to bask for very long in the, in the glow of a success and you know the 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 burning nature of a you know a failure is something that i think drives those of us that want to keep doing these things even harder and you know and i i also love that movie i i'm right there with you i i would recommend the walk to anybody and and the guy you know philippe petit he was you know, he was amazing because there, there have been lots of adventures where they're planned. I think that's the other big thing that most people don't realize. You know, he, he was doing something that was definitely not, you know, legal. Like he was, he was going to do something that took a lot of, uh, you know, surreptitious planning and, and doing things that were, uh, but he was, that were not, you know, necessarily cool, but he had to figure it out. And, and it was, it's that kind of adventure and, and thrill seeking that I think does drive a lot of people in the adventure world and certainly drives me, you know, I, I freely admit, I, I like the, you know, I like just the right amount of danger. I have a huge fear of heights and, and frankly, that's why I've bungee jumped like a dozen times. You know, because I can sit there and I can watch other people do this, right? I, I'm terrified of, you know, tall heights. And and yet if I sit there for 15 or 20 minutes and I watch three or four other people go do this thing, I can rationalize and say, okay, you know, they didn't die. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually certain I'm going to be okay. And yet, you know, that, that second, that anybody who's ever done that before understands where, you know, somebody off somewhere counts down, you know, five, four, three, two, one, and you, you actually have to let go or you have to jump. Or I've actually seen people who have had to be pushed. And, you know, it's it's uh that moment is I think what what a lot of us, you know, live for is that that instant of you know, of jumping off of something or falling or metaphorically jumping off of something with a big adventure and trusting the fact that you're going to be okay, but also, again, realizing, I mean, in, in the case of the walk, you know, he he knew he could do it. And, it, and frankly, the, what's the difference if the line was 20 feet off the ground or 2,000 feet off the ground? I mean, in theory, it's the same, it's the same wire, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, That's what I kept telling myself. Yeah. But the the mind doesn't work that way. So, you know, we have to go out there and we have to find these adventures and we have to make ourselves, you know, do them. You can do a 100-mile adventure on a known path and, and, you know, you know at almost any point you can bail out and there's a safety line to catch you, you know, if you fall and things go badly. But every once in a while it, it is nice to plan your own adventure and go off trail and certainly put in place some safety mechanisms, but, you know, but take the chance and, and take the risk that things won't go well and that you're going to have to get yourself out of a bind if, if things go poorly. Well, I, like you, uh, am a bit of a control freak in respect to, I don't mind taking risk where I have control over what happens with me. Meaning that, for example, when I fall out of a plane, there's no longer control. <laughs> yeah. Your next control uh, spot's going to be the ground. And, yeah. And that's too late. And so a lot of risk I could take. I mean, I kind of know my limitations, and I, I'm pretty resolute. I could take a pretty good beating, but I need to be able to have control. Like, for example, swimming in the ocean. I'm pretty confident that pretty much anything that gets tossed at me, I'll survive it. Yeah, uh, because it's up to me, right? It's up to me, yeah. and, and there's yeah. nobody else that's got control over what my destiny is going to be. So let, let's get on to this other thing. It's, it's kind of the polar opposite of this visceral energy rush that we've been talking about, which is you do the work, you need to rest. And I want to thank you for sending me these athletic sheets that you, you turned me on to. Oh, yeah. And I, I put them... I'm, let me share this with you. I, I put them on my bed uh, not that long ago, and my uh, my bedding prior to the sheets you sent me was like Egyptian cotton, some really I don't know, some really fine weaved cotton. We've always kind of been a junkie for having a really comfortable bed, 
But I got to say that my sheets were getting a little tattered. They were, you know, it's time to to make a change. So it wasn't a big push to to try something new and and put these sheets on my bed. And you and I discussed this before that the sheets are manufactured to improve your quality of rest and specifically designed for athletes that really, really need to get sound sleep, sound recovery, and rest. And so I put them on, and the first sensation was they seemed really slippery. Mm-hmm. So the bedding that we, you know, like we have uh, a quilt that goes over top of our bed and what have you, it seemed like if I tugged on the the comforter, I could pull it right off the bed. I could pull it right off of my wife. And sure. it was really easy to hog the covers with the the way the sheets were working. <laughs> and so that was the first sensation is they seemed very slippery to me. Yeah. And then they absolutely did feel cool. Mm-hmm. And regardless of the, the amount of time that I spent in the bed, they were a little cooler. Um, and I, I tend to have a little night sweat. Yeah. And for various reasons, I imagine. But... Um, I, I noticed that that wasn't happening, and but really kind of strange. I mean, I, I just kind of went into it with open arms, and I said, let me just kind of get a shot at what this is. I try a lot mm-hmm. of crazy stuff in my day. But kind of, can you kind of explain to me what the deal is with these sheets? Sure. No, I, I like I told you when I sent them to you. I said, man, you just gotta, you know, you gotta give them a try. You gotta give it a week and don't judge it off initial feel and and i i started deep sport which is the name of the company you know i started deep sport along with a a a friend of mine named reuben hannon and reuben was the president of champ sports for years and of footlocker in canada and you know he really knows the sporting goods industry and and i'll tell a little more background later about how i how i came upon this uh this fabric but you know, he, he, I called him to say, look, I've got this thing, you know, this fabric that I think could really help athletes. And he was skeptical and basically said, you know, why <laughs> do you think that? Because he's he's heard it all in 20 years in that business. And I said, look, I sleep hot. I, I'm one of the, you know, I'm a hot sleeper, especially if I'm in a hard training phase. And I think actually most athletes do. And frankly, for that matter, most men do. Um, and a lot of women also, but, but men tend to be from experience a little more prone to sleeping hot. And I said, I've never felt anything like this. You know, when I first slept on the sheets and I felt the, the cool sensation, I I almost worried they were going to make me too cool. And what I figured out pretty quickly is it was really dependent, it was thermoregulating. So dependent upon what my body was doing is essentially how the fabric reacted and one of Ruben's first questions to me was and you sort of alluded to it a second ago what's the thread count right because that's what that's usually like the only question people even know how to ask about sheets you know it's you mentioned Egyptian cotton and I don't I, I gotta tell you man the Egyptians haven't grown cotton maybe ever but they certainly don't do it now so it's sort of a that's sort of a made-up term in the in the you know the cotton bedding industry. It's uh, it's it's a you know just something that they uh, have proliferated in the you know in that industry. And so I just decided that I wanted to find a way to approach sleep and to take a further step back. Rich, sleep is really the the issue and the problem, right? We all know. I mean, you are the guru of of trying to change people's, you know, form and the way that they train. And, and you, you know, your business surrounds trying to help people be more effective so that they can race better on race, race day, but also so they can be healthier throughout. But no amount of what you do for them can really, you know, take hold if they're not getting proper sleep. And and I come from a background where I thought that I was different. And I, I certainly, you know, assumed that I must be special physically and that I only needed four or five hours of sleep a night. <laughs> and, you know, that, that that would be plenty for me. And when I finally, and this only happened a couple of years ago, uh, you know, after discovering deep sport, when I finally started sleeping eight hours a night, 
which I do now. If I stay up late, I'm a bit of a night owl. If I stay up late, I get eight hours of sleep regardless of when I go to bed because it's it's what I found is that for me, if I want to actually, you know, maximize my, you know, performance and all of the hard training miles that I've put in, you know, I've got to sleep. And the, the irony of that, of course, is a lot of the events I do are, are events that require sleep deprivation to actually be successful. So I decided that, okay, I needed to really focus on getting good quality sleep before and after events so that I could, you know, perform at my best during an event. Right. And I would have to agree with you. And I, and I, I know a lot of friends of mine that are extreme athletes that have really spent a lot of time focusing on the importance of getting solid rest. And a lot of people that t- tell me, oh, I don't, I don't really need more than about four or five hours. That's a big mistake. Yeah. Huge. I mean, it really is a huge mistake. And you and you think about it, like to even go back to what you said about the slickness of the fabric. Yes, it has a it has a slick feel. But if you think about the you're all about function, right? Yeah. So if you think about the functionality of the slickness, there's a reason that, you know, there's a reason that we all wear, you know, go out to any any race and look at what people are wearing and they're wearing high tech fabrics high-tech shirts, high-tech shorts, high-tech socks, high-tech shoes. Everything is high-tech, right? And and then you go home and you sleep on cotton sheets. It actually makes no sense. 20 years ago, everyone was training and racing in cotton. And, you know, that's all changed now. And the same is true for sleep. You know, it's time that sleep became high-tech and sleep became part of our training program. I, I like to say these days, sleep is the new black. You know, most of the most we actually have uh, signed on with half a dozen NBA teams, NFL teams, Major League Baseball, soccer, you name it. And these teams these days, all of these teams have sleep coaches. I don't know if you're aware of that, but, you know, they all literally have people that are specifically there to help them make sure that they're setting up their sleep environment properly. And part of that environment is a good mattress, is is great sheets like Deep Sport. It's a certain temperature. It's, uh, you know, it's a certain darkness to the room. It's getting rid of the five, you know, red or blue LED lights that are staring you in the face, even with your eyes closed. It's not going to bed and spending an hour, you know, on your cell phone or your computer in bed. And, you know, bed's meant for two things, sleeping and you can probably figure out the other one. And, you know, that's what that's for. And anything else that's happening there is it, it shouldn't be. It needs to be happening somewhere else. And I, I really decided to make sleep a priority. And, you know, the quick backstory is that years ago, of course, when we made textiles in the United States, uh, I was approached by a friend of mine in Greensboro, North Carolina, who uh, has a company called Precision Fabrics. And and a scientist there, uh, who's now a good friend of mine, had created this fabric for the medical industry uh, called Dermatherapy. And Dermatherapy had shown in clinical settings, they had done all these these, you know, very serious medical clinical tests to reduce the incidence of things like MRSA and other staph infections by up to 70%, 7-0. And the real reason is because the fabric pulls moisture away from the skin in a way that nothing else does. And it creates this environment for healthy skin. It's actually, the, the fabric is actually FDA approved for atopic dermatitis. So people who have skin uh, issues like eczema and atopic dermatitis really benefit from this fabric. But I decided to look into how this could help athletes. And of course, athletes have, you know, acne and dermatitis and all of these issues, but they also sleep very hot. That's just a fact. Men or women, you know, if they're training, tend to sleep hot. And I wanted the fabric that would, you know, that would cool. Uh, this fabric, like it cools about five times, I mean, I'm sorry, it dries more than five times faster than cotton, for example. Hmm. 
I, I always say too, there's a reason that you're, you know, you talk about having some old cotton sheets. Well, I get it. They're kind of your, your, you know, your baby, you know, your, your, you know, wife probably bought them or who knows, you know, where they came from. They've probably been around for a long time, but there's a reason that like the lint drawer on your dryer is, is full of lint when you wash your sheets. That's the fabric itself actually breaking down and you have all these, these broken ends of fabric. So that takes us back to the slickness. You know, you think about being in cotton sheets and you roll over. If you toss and turn a fair amount, okay, this sounds, you know, crazy in a way, but your your skin is the largest organ in your body. <laughs> and it's working very hard every time you toss and turn and you roll over. And what you'll find with deep sport sheets is that after a while, your body stops working so hard. It will stop you. It can't stop you from tossing and turning completely because, you know, that has to do with eating habits and a lot of other things also. But it will make your body, you know, work much less hard when you're actually in bed and sleeping. So you do give up. A, you know, it's it's interesting. You have to learn how to keep the bedspread on the on the bed. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you'll find that you really will have much better, cooler sleep there. One final thing, they're actually antimicrobial and antibacterial. Um, you know, they, they ward off everything from bed bugs to dust mites. And uh, Deep Sport makes it. We make a travel sack also that is probably our most popular item that, you know, people just literally take on the road. You go stay in a motel or a hotel, even nice places. You never, you never really know what you're sliding into when you get into bed. And, you know, with this, you can actually kind of take your own sleep environment with you. That's interesting. Yeah, well, the, the whole thing of the slickness is we've adjusted our tug factor. You know, how, how yeah. hard to pull on the uh, the, the comforter <laughs> to, to not have your wife be completely without covers or vice versa. Yeah. It took me about... I think it took me, uh, I don't know, it took me about three or four days to really kind of start wrapping my head around it. Yeah. Uh, initially, I thought, oh, this is kind of weird. And then, yeah. But then, you know, i, I got to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I've, I've come to like him. I, I think that uh, uh, clearly I, I am more comfortable in the sheets. So, yeah. for whatever it's worth. Yeah, that's great. Well, it, is, it is the it is the weave, you know. It's a, it's a patented weave, you know. There's nothing... It, it is an interesting thing. The weave itself is patented, and I don't even all the science behind it is is over my head. Frankly, I just know that they work. And you know what I care about? I, I care about the same thing you do: getting good sleep. But I really care as an athlete about getting results. Sure. And if you know that you can improve your results, and look, I can't always get eight hours of sleep just because I'm sleeping on you know deep sport sheets. But if I can only get five or six then I want those five or six to be the best quality hours that I can possibly get. And so, you know, we'll spend a fortune on shoes. And I always make the joke that if you know triathletes, you know, they'll spend hundreds of dollars on a on a new derailleur for their bike that's that's four grams lighter than the old derailleur. <laughs> hundreds. You, have you been paying attention to the cost of parts for a bike lately? <laughs> yeah. It's bizarre. And, you know, Right, and so these and these sheets they last forever, like they last forever. It's actually a, it's a poor business decision on some level on my part because you know what I really need is something that you have to replace every couple of years. But you know the reality is these you know these sheets will last forever, and they're you know the the properties of them. Once you start sleeping on them, you know you really can't. You'll want to take them on the road with you because you just you know you want to have that feel every time you you know get into bed. Huh. So tell people how to find these things. Yeah, it's really easy. I mean, just deepsport.com. It's uh, just like it sounds, D-E-E-P-S-P-O-R-T.com. And, you know, we we have, uh, of course, uh, great delivery and all the information is on the website. And there's, look, there's studies. So for the scientific people out there that actually want to see what the science behind the product is, that's all here on the website. If if all you're looking for is, hey, I want to give this a try and see if it works for me, then uh, it's a it's a simple thing to do. But all the research and the uh, 
you know, and the, the benefits uh, are all listed there. And, and uh, we, you know, we're a new company, but we've gained a lot of attra- a lot of traction very quickly. And, you know, as I said, these professional sports teams, we have some Olympic athletes that are uh, coming on board for Rio and, you know, it's very important to us. You know, we want to, we want to see these guys succeed and look, you and I both know, Richard, the difference between, you know, the difference between first place and 10th and place very often is a matter of, you know, it's one or 2% improvement. Oh yeah. No doubt you know, about that. It's, it is a science. And if you train scientifically and you, you eat a good diet and you spend all this time and effort to do all of this, and then you, you know, you throw it all away by not getting good sleep, then, you know, it's just a mistake. And and I think most people would agree with that. So I appreciate, you know, I appreciate you giving them a try and, and, uh, you know, and asking me a couple of questions about it. You, you made me remember an interview that I saw with an exercise physiologist at Colorado Springs at the uh, Olympic training camp. Mm-hmm. They were demonstrating some of the various um, tests and procedures that they put the athletes through. And the fellow said that luck is no longer an equation in gold medals. Every single detail is brought to play. And yeah. if you do not focus on all these intricate details of your process and leave something off the table and just hope that you're, the wind is going to be at your back and things are going to go well that day, you're destined to lose for sure. Yeah. And science has proven it, Richard. I mean, you're a scientist. You know, you you know that you can do, and these studies, they don't lie. You know, you, you can take people who are getting, taking sleep, because that's what we're talking about. They're getting, you know, a certain amount of sleep, and they increase that by 15%, and free throw percentages go up. Three-point percentages go up. You know, times in the hundred or in the mile go down. I mean, this is not an accident. You know, when you, when you change only one thing and times and results improve, it's because you're getting better sleep. No, no question. (laughs) You know, so talk to me about what's next on the Charlie Ingle show. Ah, very good. Well, um, lots of things for this year. I am going to be doing some, some races coming up. Um, I'm going to do a, a, a double, as we say. Uh, I'm going to do the Badwater Cape Fear uh, 50K uh, in March. And I did the 50-miler last year. And, you know, Chris Kaufman at Badwater puts on amazing events. And this one in uh, Bald Head Island, North Carolina, is just a fantastic race. I'm doing the 50k this year because I've actually I've, I've got the uh honor of being the keynote speaker for the Quintiles Wrightsville Beach Marathon the next day. And that's right here in my hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina. Awesome. And so I'm uh I'm going to speak. So I'm going to run the 50k on Saturday, speak that night and then get up the next morning to run the marathon at at Wrightsville Beach. And you know, and that's all again, that's all just fun. That's uh that's the good stuff. You know, I got a lot of other events. One of my goals this year is really to race more. You know, I want to do more short, I say shorter events. It's it's funny, you know, 50s, you know, 50 miles on down. Uh, I want to do more of those this year because they're fun and I enjoy it. And I realize I, I sometimes spend too much time planning big things and ignoring the joy that I get out of just showing up and stepping up to the, to the line and, and doing a race. But, um, I'm going to I've been trying to do the Keys 100 for years down there. Bob Becker, the race director for that race is uh an amazing guy and I want to do his events and I once again I can't go this year but I'm going to try to go down and do uh he has a trail race coming up in February that's a 50 miler. Oh boy. Um so that kind of thing but my and I will tell you I do have two two other things that I'll I'll mention and and one is um I haven't. We haven't made any big announcements, but I will tell you that that there is a um, there's an event that's going to be coming up in May that's going to involve a handful of other well-known ultra runners, and we're gonna we're gonna do a run across the United States in order to benefit um, you know mental health issues. And most people know that I've been in uh, in addiction recovery for a very long time, a couple of decades. I'm happy to say and. There's a lot of people out there that still need help. So this cross-country run in May 
uh, is going to, you know, is going to be go a long way towards, uh, we hope towards helping a lot of people cool. in that way. And, uh, then the, the final thing I'm doing is, uh, I'm doing a run across the Pyrenees. There's a race, uh, it's hard to call it a race because it's about a thousand kilometers, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, across the Pyrenees in France, and uh, about 300 runners are going to start uh, in mid-July and and cover about a thousand miles across the entire length of the Pyrenees in France. And um, you know, I'm excited about that adventure because that is a that is a big one. That's that's hopefully right in my right in my wheelhouse, and you know, I hope to go there and do well. Did oh, you and suck Nick into that? Uh, did I what? Did you suck Nick into doing no, that? No, no. Nick is uh, Nick. I did mention it to him, and I will freely admit I mentioned it to him while there were still spaces available in the event. And you know, for whatever reason, he didn't seem interested. And I was I, I found myself being glad because I didn't I didn't have any interest in chasing him for ten days because <laughs> he would have been out there just killing it. That that run is going to be it's exactly what he is is great at and and uh there's not many americans in the race mostly french and europeans but um i'm i'm excited about doing something that's a little different and you know the final thing rich you know i know you'll you'll let me say it is uh my you know my book will be out in september and it's so it's still it seems like the publishing process takes a very long time but i'm i'm very excited to say that it's about 98% 98% complete cool. and in, in the final editing phase. And, and, um, it was a much harder thing to do than any run event expedition I have ever done. Like just, just unbelievably difficult and sitting down in the chair and actually getting something done like that every day brought out all the worst qualities in me. Oh my God. I hear you, brother. I've, I'm in the middle of trying to regurgitate a couple things myself and it's just, it's just brutal. It so really much is. easier. Who knew so many closets needed to be cleaned, right? Oh man. You know, oh man. Just rough. Sit rough. down and I'm like, there's so many things I need to be doing other than writing this book. So no, it was a, it was a challenge for me. And, and I think you and I are similar in that way. So I, w- I wish you good luck. Yeah. Final question in respect to the whole running thing. Did you ever run with Nick before this, this past trip? I, actually, no. Okay. So that's a great question. So we we had not done an adventure before Nick and I had and I I met Nick of course when he was 19 and he was at Badwater and and I see this you know this kid before the race and I mean he really is you know he's a he's a kid he looks like a kid at 19 years old and kind of a baby face and I admired him greatly for trying and thought for sure that there was no way he would get through Badwater and he not only got through it, he he finished you know well in the top third of the of the pack. But uh, and after that, I knew. And then of course, after his Barkley finish and other things, I I knew that Nick was somebody that I I wanted to do something with. And so it was ironic. I mean, he's the one who asked me to do this uh, this recent adventure, and and I found myself really. Um, you know, I, I said yes because I really wanted to do something with Nick, and I look forward to to doing that again. Well, I got to tell you, Nick, since him and I have worked together, um, when I first met him, well, we met him on the cruise, but uh, he came out, and we've done some work together, and he's really a grip. He sits down, pen and paper, and starts taking notes, and he just starts getting really, really detail oriented, and I, I absolutely revolutionized the way he's moving and it's fun to watch he runs beautifully right now he well really he has beautiful. told me that and look i have seen him run before and then i got to see him run a lot when we just did this recent adventure and it's interesting because nick is a it's a personality thing that he and i discussed and i think when you're doing an adventure with somebody you kind of have to understand positioning and this sounds funny but nick likes to run ahead so nick is a as a i think he called himself a half stepper like it didn't matter what i did or what pace i ran nick was going to be a half a step in front of me (laughs) and you know and that's just his nature and i actually like being in the back anyway so it's fun you know my my wife runs the same way she likes to be in front so 
I'm accustomed to it. And watching him run, though, and he actually described to me the changes in his stride that you have have made, and not just his stride, but his overall mechanics, uh, and how he feels like his efficiency is 10 or 15% better now than what it used to be before you guys started working together. And I, I think that that, you know, it, it I, I'm ready. I need my turn with you because... <laughs> I am a, I have, I've always said I'm an ugly runner. I get the job done usually, but you know, I've, I've never been pretty to look at and I'm, I'm not worried about being pretty to look at now. I just want to be as efficient as I possibly can be. Yeah. You don't run with your feet. You run with your brain. Yeah, that's very true because I, I, I have always said running is the one sport that you can get away. You can get away to a certain degree with poor mechanics and I don't have great mechanics in running. I also don't have any huge flaws. I mean, I'm 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 blessed with, you know, a fairly uh, even tempo stride. But I'm I'm nobody you'd look at across the track and go, wow, that that guy looks amazing. You know, you 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 might say, wow, you know, I wonder if that guy just hurt himself. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, it's amazing how much you have helped Nick and I look forward to, you know, at some point getting my turn with you and, and seeing what you can do for me. If you can straighten out this mess. Well, there's a good chance that's going to happen <clears throat> one day. I I'm like, I told you, we plan to go to do a clinic in Sarasota, Florida. I think it's uh, going to be Valentine's weekend. And nice. then right after that, we're going to be in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Very good. I'm very excited about Baton Rouge. I, I lived in New Orleans for a bit and hmm. did, did the Crawfish Man Triathlon, mm-hmm. which is in Lake yeah. Pontchartrain, and uh, did the Louisiana State Championships. I always like to talk about, uh, I believe I grabbed an alligator in the river uh, <laughs> during the swim. Um, uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to the south again. But anyway, yeah. Charlie, I always love talking to you, Charlie. Same here, Rich. It it's always, it's I... always good stuff. Um, I wish you the best. I'm sure we'll cross paths here in the very near future and i wish you and your wife the best of luck in this new year thank you so much he says hello to you also rich and we look forward to seeing you again hopefully you know at one of your clinics and you know keep up the good work keep keep helping people and you as well my friend well friends it's time to bring another show to a close be sure and tune in to us next week we've got a lot of great content in store for you I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.